Right, okay, so the the third in our talks on Titus, we we saw last time uh, primarily how Paul was homing in on telling Titus what to be looking for in elders, you know, what sort of people they need to be in. And we saw, you know, the primary role that eldership plays in dealing with divisive people and troublemakers who come in and, you know, and put the church at risk. And, you know, we saw that, you know, sort of like, you know, really what it boils down to is that the elder is this kind of irresistible force. You know, if you see, you know, potential rebels as immovable objects, well, elders are the irresistible force that they hit up against. Um, you know, and of course, what, what it boils down to is that, you know, when people, you know, sort of come in with their agendas, their false teachings or whatever, the point is they won't get past the elders. That's that's the key. They, they will not succeed in what they're trying to do, which is to divide churches and, and pull people away from the truth of what the Bible says about certain things onto their own way of thinking, um, you know, which, which, which goes against. And, uh, you know, so, so that's really been the, the emphasis of this letter um, up to date. But now what Paul does is that he turns um, his attention to telling Titus what he needs to be doing in regards to just people in general in the church. So he's been addressed in regarding to recognizing elders and you know their role. But now you know Paul turns to to how Titus has to help lead and teach various other groups in in the church. Okay, who who are following the Lord and who honestly want to be growing in Him. And uh, so so let's just um. Read, read through this, I think, first. So we're, we're on chapter 2 and, and verses 1 to 10, I think, is what we'll be uh, doing tonight. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Okay, right, so so basically what, what Paul is saying here, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, um, it's not actually, here it says teach, that isn't actually the Greek word. The Greek word here is lalio, and it just means to speak out. Uh, so yes, you can speak out by way of teaching, but what, what Paul is saying is you've got to get 
the message out, all right? You must speak out what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Now, we saw this last time. Um, when the Bible talks about sound doctrine, doctrine is the word for teaching. And uh, sound, we saw that the Greek word for that is the word we get hygiene from. And it means spiritually healthy, spiritually hygienic. So that to the extent that you stick to the truth, that is hygienic. Eat good food, it will do your body good. Eat rubbish, eat contaminated food, it will do your body bad. Now spiritually, it's exactly the same. If we live in the truth and grow in the truth of what the Bible teaches, that is spiritually healthy. It's hygienic. But whenever wrong teaching and wrong thinking gets in that goes against the Bible, then we're contaminating our spirits as surely as if when you eat contaminated food, you'll end up being sick or something. Well, that can happen spiritually as well. And one of the reasons why, you know, when we look around at the Christian scene, that there is so much weakness. You know, the, the Christian scene today is sick. It's weak. It's not strong. And it's because there is so much unhealthy teaching, so much unhygienic stuff being taught and taken in by Christians. And it's spiritually damaging, okay? But also, what I want you to, 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 to see here is that in verse 2, he then goes on, teach the older men to be, and we're going to be looking at this in detail. But the point to get is that in this context, when Paul is saying, look, Titus, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, he then goes on to deal not with what you might call theoretical beliefs, but he deals with how people behave. Now, obviously, yeah, doctrine is to do with what we believe, okay? It's to do with the apprehension of the truth. But, of course, it's easy to end up being someone who has a great understanding of the truth, but doesn't live the truth. And what's interesting is that when the Bible talks about sound doctrine as opposed merely to doctrine, it's, 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 it's more the idea that if you take, you know, say the idea of having faith, all right, having faith makes you a believer, all right. It's not just a question of something that you do in your head. It leads to a life of following the Lord. And so in the same way, to be sound in doctrine, all right, doesn't mean that you're believing the right things. That's not what makes you sound in doctrine. Now, you can't be sound in doctrine if you believe the wrong things. But merely believing the right things is not, biblically speaking, sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is when we are living out the right understanding we have of biblical truth. Can you see the difference? So, there's mere head knowledge. Paul, Paul talks about knowledge puffs up. There is mere head knowledge, and that cannot in any way be considered to be biblically sound. I've met people who have a good understanding of what the Bible teaches, but they don't live it out. You cannot say that they are of sound doctrine. Their understanding may be in line with Scripture, but if they're not living it, biblically it's not sound doctrine in any way at all. And so we've got to understand that when we approach this idea of sound doctrine biblically, it's not merely a question of believing the right things. It's a question of, are we living 
consistently with that correct teaching that we believe. Okay, and really, this is exactly you know what James says in chapter one and verse twenty-two, when James says, "Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers." We can be hearers only; it can just be head knowledge. That's no good. It's got to be lived out in our daily lives, and so that is why now, what Paul does, he says, "Titus, you've got these various groups in the church; these different you know sort of groups of people, and you need to be." Teaching them and helping them in the way that is, you know, that applies to them. And so here he starts with the older men, okay. And so he says, right, we're dealing here with people who are a kind of, you know, they may or may not have been following the Lord for a long time and in this situation probably weren't, because the church wouldn't have been that old. But the point is, we're talking now about older men who, even though they might not have been Christians any longer than some of the younger people in the church, nevertheless, older men do have experience they can draw on. And if someone comes to know the Lord who's older, say a 50-year-old comes to know the Lord, there's a sense in which that 50-year-old should reach spiritual maturity much sooner than if, say, a 20-year-old came to know the Lord. Because immediately he has much more life experience to draw on in maturing in the Lord. If only because, I mean, you know, most older people have a far better understanding of all the mistakes they've made and all the ways they've screwed up. They have a much better understanding of that than people who are younger. Younger people tend to be a bit brash, a bit cocky. I certainly was. That was me when I was young. Okay. So the point is that older men, more is to be expected from older men than from younger men, even if they haven't been Christians for very long. Now, look what you know. He, he actually says of them. He says that they, he says, you must teach them. They're saying, Titus, you've got to be responsible for, for showing them the way here, but you've got to teach them. And he says, firstly, to be temperate. Now, this is nephalios, the Greek word. It means free from the influence of intoxicants. Now, its usage here is not primarily concerned with not getting drunk, although that would be included, um, as would nowadays, you know, sort of like the drugs, you know, sort of like smoking joints and stuff like that, anything that intoxicates. But that, that's not the primary use of the word here. It's, it's, it's talking about being clear thinking. It implies watchfulness in the Greek. And so the point is that the more we surrender ourselves to the Lord, the more lucid and less scatterbrained we ought to be in how we think and how we act. And if you think about it, older people ought to be less scatterbrained and all over the place than younger people. It just makes sense. Because even though it may have been long years without the Lord, nevertheless older men have, they've got experience, which younger people don't have. And so what he's saying is, look, you've got to make sure that the older men are temperate, that, that you know, temperate, that they're clear thinking and that they're kind of watchful and that they're not scatterbrained and all over the place. Secondly, he said, they must be worthy of respect. Now, this, this Greek word, semnos, uh, often, and later on in, uh, 
in the letter here, we're going to see it gets translated serious. But here, it's translated worthy of respect. And uh, in the sense of it being serious and grave, okay, it's not talking about not having a sense of humour, but it is talking about that combination of gravity and dignity of character, which at least has you living with a sense of, of awe and reverence before God. The opposite of this would, would be like casual, lackadaisical, freewheeling, not taking anything seriously approach to life. You know, the typical irresponsible person who doesn't take anything seriously, okay. So, I mean, that kind of attitude won't get anyone anywhere, obviously. So he's saying, look, you've got to make sure that the older men understand they're not to be like that. And two, two of Paul's favourite ways of describing following the Lord was um, sport, being a sportsman, athlete, and being a soldier. Now, if you think about it, sportsman and so I mean, a sportsman, he's serious about his training. He wants to do well. He wants to excel. He has a healthy respect for those he's competing against. And so, therefore, he takes things seriously. Doesn't mean he never has any fun. Doesn't mean he doesn't have a social life outside of being a, a sportsman or an athlete. But the point is, he is seriously into his training because of what he wants to accomplish. And of course, when Paul alludes to the idea of us being soldiers, the point is, if a soldier doesn't take the battle seriously, if a soldier doesn't have a healthy respect for his enemy, he's a dead man. And so in the same way that soldiers and athletes have to take what they do deadly seriously, it doesn't mean you don't get any fun, but they're deadly serious about what they're doing, then in the same way Paul is saying this is how we ought to live our Christian lives. At the end of the day, serving Almighty God, which is what we're doing, is a serious business. And, and there's a sense in which to be a disciple there is head down, 100% commitment, getting on with it. But here, Paul is specifically saying, Titus, make sure that the older men are specifically taking this aspect of things on board. Okay. Then he says, thirdly, that they are to be self-controlled. Now, this, this Greek word is, is, is sophron. Uh, we saw it last time of an elder, and it, it means master of himself. It's from the two Greek words, sozo, which means to save, and friend, which is the word Greek word for mind. And basically it means a saved mind, a sound mind. Or, uh, to put it another way, a good, solid, biblical thinker who acts accordingly. That, that's what this Greek word comes across. So what Paul is saying, hey, look, you know, yeah, they need to be, you know, of sound mind, you know, really biblically thinking. And then he says, and sound in faith. Now, this, this, this here is, is that deep, settled trust in the Lord. That, that, that faith that is so deep down, it's an anchor, that you don't get all the, the weird and wonderful tangents I mean, all, all the time there are distractions and there's demonic deceptions, all, all this stuff that we saw last talk that elders are there partly to protect the church from. There's always the weird and wonderful stuff 
that's going on that can take people right off at a tangent. And what Paul is saying, no, make sure that the older men realise that they've got to be sound in the faith. They've got to be good biblical thinkers and they've got to have that deep down trust in the Lord that keeps them solid and anchored to him and anchored to the truth. And then he says, and this has got to be in love. So sound in the faith, but in love as well. And I mean, love should be our guiding light. It should be the motive. We, we love him because he first loved us. And of course, Jesus said, you know, if you, you know, sort of love me, then love one another as I have loved you. That, that, that is all the time, you know, the standard that we need to be aiming for. So that's a real, that self-giving, that sacrifice, that putting the needs of others before the needs of yourself. And, uh, and then uh, finally, he says, of the older men, he says, teach them to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. It's huponome, and it means an abiding under. It's, it's an endurance which grows under trial. Okay, And in the New Testament, it's, it's often used of the... the the endurance which is the result of God's disciplining of us through affliction, through persecution. It's the idea of that endurance that is produced because of the character that is produced when you go through trials and tribulations. And of course, this is one of the reasons why older men should come to this quicker than younger men. Even though they might have only been a Christian the same amount of time, they should be able to come to this faster because they have so much more experience. They've been through all the knocks in life. And when an older man comes to know the Lord, they should very, very quickly begin to see the effect of that, the endurance that it ought to be producing in them. And, you know, another word for endurance, and I like, is stickability. Stickability. This real following the Lord, stickability. Not, not wavering, not going off on tangents, not falling away or sometimes being lukewarm or cooling down but all the time just that sticking to the Lord, that plodding, that endurance, that going after him all the time. Okay, Right, so that's the, the, the first group that Titus deals with. Now he turns to the older women. Okay, And uh, there's, there's, there's some important stuff in here. Okay, And, uh, you know, and I say as well stuff that is controversial, um, is unwelcomed, uh, by many Christians, at least in this country, but nevertheless we've got to you know, see what Paul actually teaches. This is the responsibility that Titus, as a, a, a leader, albeit temporary, temporary of churches, needs to be passing on to the converts. So he says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Okay, now this Reverence, hieroprepis, it's from two words, pripu, which is the word for fitting, the idea of something being fitting or seemly, and then hieros, which is the Greek word for sacred. And so what he's saying is that the older women should be behaving in a seemly, fitting and sacred way. So what he's saying is it's absolutely vital uh, that their character and behaviour befits someone who has been set apart for the Lord's service. And of course that is a definition of a believer. Each one of us here tonight 
The reason we're believers, the reason that we're in God's family is because we have been set aside by him for his service. You know, when the Bible talks about be holy, that is the essence of what holiness is. The idea of being set apart from that which is sinful, but set apart also to the Lord for his service. Okay. And he also says that they shouldn't be slanderers. Now, the, the, the Greek word here, slanderer, false accuser, the Greek word is diabolos, which is the Greek word for the devil. The devil is ultimately the slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. Okay, He is the liar. He is the accuser. And slander, gossip, backbiting, all that sort of stuff, is one of the surest ways to let the devil in a church. Okay, Satan gets loose in a church when stuff like this happens. And it does have to be said that older women can be particularly prone to this. Think about it. Kids grown up, left the nest, maybe husband's still at work, often back then, husband dead by then, you know, because they didn't live that long, um, you know, but time on hands. And uh, obviously, you know, we have a saying, don't, don't we, it's not from the Bible, but it's very biblical, the devil finds work for idle hands to do. And so there's a particular danger here. And of course, even, even in the world's thinking, all right, set, set part now what we've just read in the Bible, but even in the world's thinking, the idea of old women gossiping, and gadding about is, is, you know, a proverbial idea, okay? So everybody knows that that is a, a particular danger. But my goodness, what a contrast between older women who are like that and what they can be according to what Paul says here. And, uh, you know, so, so obviously no, no slanders, but we're going to see what the older women can do instead of that. And it's one of the most valuable things that can be done by anyone, okay. Now he, he said, and we'll be on to that in just a moment. And he said, not addicted to much wine, okay. That's that's fine, uh, speaks for itself. But he says, but to teach what is good, to teach what is good. So the older women, they have to have a ministry of teaching. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? We've we've kind of spent a lot of our time as a church in deep trouble precisely because we acknowledge that elsewhere, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So here he says that actually the older women, part of their function is to teach what is good. So what is the context here? Okay, well, he immediately goes on to say, then they can train the younger women. So what we're seeing here is that when you get older women who have mature, obviously in earthly years, but who are mature in the Lord as well, one of the most valuable uh, things that they can do is to teach and train younger women in what God wants of them. Now, let me say here at the outset, Paul is not in any way talking about the older women doing teaching at women's conferences. That is not in any way, shape or form what Paul has got in mind here. When he says about training the younger women, he's talking here about taking the younger women under their wing. 
this is personal, this is friendship, this is one-on-one, -on -one. this is a long-term thing. It's much more like bringing up children. It's not like, you know, sort of doing teaching at a conference for young women on how to be godly young women. No, that's not it at all. But this is that valuable part that the older women can, can, can play. So then, how, what are they supposed to train the younger women in? Okay, right, well, let's, let's go through it. Firstly, to love their husbands and children. Now, who better to do that than older women who have been there, done that, got the T-shirt in the Lord? Obviously. It's so practical. There's so much that younger people can learn from older people who have learned from many, many mistakes. And there are so many, you know, kind of like landmines that they can say, oh, no, don't, don't tread on the same landmines that I did. You know, this is how I got it right from being wrong. There are so many pitfalls that you can avoid if you're just willing to, you know, to learn from the voice of experience, okay? And so the first thing is to train the younger women to love their husbands and children. And of course, this is the main task of a married woman, be they old or young. But younger women who are maybe newly married, obviously, Paul is thinking here of the women who are married, but this would also be true of young ladies who aren't married yet and who are still single, that this is the main task of a married woman. This, well, the main task, this is her task. It's to be that helper and lover of her husband and, of course, a major influence in the bringing up of um, the children. And, you know, sort of there is no task more noble or honourable than this. Now, there's something else that's interesting here, because it's the only place in the New Testament where wives uh, are in any way, shape or form, and it's indirect here, but it's the only place where wives are indicated that they should love their husbands. Isn't that interesting? Because... Whenever Paul elsewhere deals with the relationship between husbands and wives, and not just Paul, it's the same in Peter, when Peter does it, whenever the relationship of, the mutual relationship of husband and wife, whenever that is dealt with in the New Testament, wives are never told to love their husbands. They're told to submit to them. And another thing that's interesting as well is that Every time the wives are addressed and told to submit to their husbands before there's any command given to the husbands. Now, the command to the husbands is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. But each time this happens in the New Testament, it is always wives submit to your husband that comes first, followed by Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So what we've got is that predominantly, although an exception here, Women are not told to love their husbands, they're told to submit to them. And the women are always addressed before the husbands. Now, why is that? I think the answer is this. If you think about it, think about the different relationship, all right, the different gender roles between a husband and a wife, okay? Now then, a wife is meant to submit and surrender to her husband. A husband is meant to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So the husband is meant to be the head the leader of the family. 
Now then, the reason that all the time the women are addressed first and told to submit to their husbands and not love them is this. If a wife won't submit to her husband, there is absolutely nothing that husband can do to fulfil his role as the head of the family. Now then, that husband can still love his wife as Christ loves the church. Of course he can. Even if she doesn't submit to him. Even if she doesn't let him be the head of the house, he can still love her as Christ loves the church. And he must be doing that. But there's nothing he can do to be the head of the house. He can only lead his wife if his wife is willing to follow. However, the position that a wife is in is this. Even if her husband doesn't love her as Christ loved the church, she can still submit to him. So can you see the point? A wife can fulfill her wifehood fully even if her husband doesn't love her like Christ loved the church. But if a wife doesn't submit to her husband, then that husband cannot fulfill his reason to be as a husband. Because he can love her as Christ loved the church, but he can't be her leader, he can't be her head. Can you see the point? And so that's why you always get that. But here, interestingly, we have the only place where wives are actually told to love their husbands. And obviously, of course, they're meant to love their husbands. Okay. So the older women are to train, help the younger women, take them under their wing, to love their husbands and children. And then it says to be self controlled, okay, um, whoops, just got lost here, that's it, I'm back here now, um, yeah, to be self-controlled, that's the same as the older men, the sound mind, biblical thinker, and it's, it's important for wives to be biblical thinkers as well, um, obviously, the husband is the leader, he's responsible for, for doing the teaching in the family, but the point is, a husband isn't just teaching his family what the Bible says so they can just sit there and listen to it. He, he's teaching his wife and children what the Bible says so that they can actually do it. You see what I mean? So it's important that wives are biblical uh, thinkers as well. And, um, you know, it's, you know, and of course, obviously, I mean, a poor wife, I mean, crumb, she's got a husband and children on her hands. I mean, it'd be very easy to be all over the place. But Paul says, no, you older women, you train, help the younger women to not be all over the place and teach them how to keep a good head on themselves. Because, my goodness, wives really do need a good head on them. And, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I've said, haven't I, to, you know, some of our young men in the past when they've, uh, you know, sort of come across a certain young lady that they think, oh, this is nice. And I've always said to them, look, you've got to make sure that that light in her eye isn't the sun shining out through the hole in her head, right? No man needs a wife with a hole in her head, okay? You need a good thinker. And that is part of what the older women should be training the younger women to become, okay? And uh, then it says that they are to be pure. Train the younger women to be pure. Um, the word here is hagnos, and it's tied in with the Greek words for holiness and sanctified, hagios. So it's all, all related in regards to that. And this is something, all right, there's a particular way 
that young ladies have to tackle purity in a particular way that applies to them. Obviously, there's a way, as we're going to see with young men, that it particularly applies to them. But for the women, the particular way it applies to them is, I think, a way that they, they, they really must take into account whether they're married or not, all right? Young women have got to take into account and all the time be aware of the power that your gorgeousness can have over men, right? Now, that's men's fault, it's not your fault. The fact that you're gorgeous and that that can make men stumble is not your fault. That's the fault of men, that's their sin. But the point is that you do need to all the time bear a thought for us poor old men and in regards to obviously how you dress, to all the time be taking that in mind. Don't make it harder than it already is for us poor old men, if you see what I mean. And of course, you know, when, uh, you know, sort of like uh, Paul deals elsewhere, doesn't he, with about the importance of women dressing in a modest way, okay? So, how can I put this? You know, ladies, especially young ladies, keep on being gorgeous. It would be dreadful if you stop being gorgeous, but, and dress gorgeously as well, but the thing is not to kill. Can you see what I mean? And all the time, the specific thing that, that, that young ladies, and it's older ladies as well, you know, and, uh, you know, sort of, they, they don't necessarily, my, my young lady, who's not so young now, is, uh, hasn't uh, stopped in her appeal as far as I'm concerned, so certainly the older women have to bear this in mind as well. But the point is that obviously women do... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that obviously women do have to be aware that there's a particular call to purity on their lives because of that reason, okay, okay. so uh, I, I won't say any more um, in regards to that. Now, the next thing that the older women are to train the younger women to be, and this is, you know, this is, this is where Christians like us get into trouble today, isn't it? Because Paul says here that the young women should be busy at home. Now then, let's let's do the Greek here. The Greek word here for busy at home is oikergos. And it's from two other Greek words. It's from the Greek noun oikos, which means home. And it's from the Greek verb ergon, which means to work. And it literally means to work at home. Now, of course, the point is, the woman is obviously the primary keeper of the nest. She is the homemaker. She is the home builder, okay? And when we talk about, you know, I mean sort of like the phrase that people use, it can be misapplied and it can be used in a completely wrong way. But when we have this phrase that women belong in the home, all right, a wife belongs in the home, that is actually biblically accurate. Now, it doesn't mean chain to the kitchen sink. Of course it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that husbands don't have a role in helping in what you will call the domestic work. But the point is, we're talking primary roles here. And the truth of the matter is that whenever the New Testament locates wives, it always locates them at home. 
That doesn't mean they're not allowed out of the house. Of course, I'm not saying that at all. But can you see, if the primary role of the husband is to be the breadwinner, is to be the provider, the primary role of the wife is to be at home building, keeping, managing the home. And obviously, if there are children, that becomes even more vital, okay? So the point is, you know, we're not, you know, sort of talking about that, you know, men don't lift their fingers doing housework. That would be ridiculous. Any more than we say that women would never help their husbands in regards to their job, which would be equally ridiculous. But the main point is we have very definite roles here, and we have the women folk located in the home, and we have the men folk as the heads of the families and the providers of the family, okay? And, uh, you know, so obviously we see that the principal role of the wife is to, to make sure the home is as it should be. Um, you know, sort of like, a, a love, I'm not talking about a house proud kind of thing, but every aspect that home should be welcoming, it, it should be a great place, it should be, you know, not a tip, not falling around about the ears, uh, you know, but, but sort of that, that home, you know, that when, when, when husband comes home from work, it's a pleasure to walk into the house, do you see what I mean? Into that whole family environment, because that, that wife and mother's love has just been poured into making the home as it should be. And, uh, and of course, in our, in our days of feminist thinking, even in the church, most Christians seem to be feminist thinking now, we, we have, you know, if not role reversal, we have this kind of equal thing that wives are seen as generators of money um, and, you know, stuff like that, that women out there working. Uh, well, I mean, if they've got children, I would say that's absolutely a no-no. You know, if they haven't got children or if the children have grown up and gone, obviously that's a different kettle of fish. But we do need to get back to what the Bible teaches about gender roles rather than where we are today. And uh, I mean, in, in some ways, I think we've, there's a principle that, you know, that we need to, um, you know, to understand here, okay. Um, let's, hang on, I just want to read one, 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 5 and uh, uh, verse 14 and 15, okay. Um, because this is, this is tremendously important. He says, I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes. Now that word manage is actually the word we get despot from, to be in charge of their homes. Not in charge of their husband, but to be in charge of the homemaking because the husband has delegated that to them, all right? and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. We've already seen slander, diabolos, false accusation. Some have, in fact, now he's talking about young widows here who haven't taken Paul's advice, remarried and had children. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Now, that's an incredibly strong thing to say. In our Titus passage, just go, go, go to the end of verse 5, he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. So what we've got when Paul writes to Titus and to Timothy, precisely when he is dealing with these gender roles, he specifically points out that 
if we go against those gender roles, and particularly the role of the wife, he says that people are going to malign the word of God, and that even the women folk can end up going after Satan. Now, that going after Satan doesn't mean becoming a Satanist. Now, of course, it doesn't mean going, but it means taken in by the devil, ending up going his way rather than the Lord's way. And these two statements, so that no one will malign the word of God and the one we've just seen in Timothy, are two of the strongest statements that Paul makes anywhere in his letters. And both of them are to do with the vital importance of observing the difference in gender roles and particularly observing that um, of that role for the ladies as being the homemakers. Now, I want to introduce a principle here because we do need to understand this, okay? And I call it the principle that you can't unscramble eggs. Now, what do I mean by that? We saw actually last time when we were looking at the qualification for elders that the emphasis that an elder has to be a married man or as it says in the Greek, a one-woman man, all right? The push behind that is not so much that he mustn't have been divorced, although I guess it applies to that as well, but in the early church, there were, lots of people were polygamous. They had more than one wife. Okay. Now, the point is, when someone was converted and came into the church, if they had several wives or more than one wife, well, you couldn't say to them, right, you know, dump all of them except one. That would be absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, because that would have actually created more evil than it was solving. Can you see what I mean? And back then there was no social security, there were no benefits. Any wife who was disenfranchised by her husband, well, I mean, she either starved or had to go off and earn her living dishonorably. I mean, it was, you know, it was not easy being a woman back then if you didn't have a husband. So obviously, this is what I mean by you can't unscramble eggs. You should only have one wife. But when you become a Christian, if you've already got several wives, well, you've got to stick with several wives. Can you see the point? It's not what the Bible teaches, but you can't unscramble eggs. But what we do see in the New Testament is that if a man does have more than one wife, then he cannot ever be recognized as an elder because then that would send out the wrong signals. So the point is, if you've got men in the church with more than one wife, that's as it is. It's wrong, but there's nothing they can do about it. However, the standard that the church represents is that for anyone who's not married yet or already has one wife, that's their limit. And if anyone who didn't already have multiple wives set out to have multiple wives, then the church would do discipline against them. And if they didn't put that right, they'd be thrown out of the church. Can you see the point? So what I'm meaning by you can't unscramble eggs is there are times when one has to live saying, well, it's not as it should be, but that's the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. However, we must maintain the high standard for those who maybe are going to be better able to get it right. Now, it's exactly the same for us in regards to these gender roles, all right? Because obviously, many, many Christians you know, they, they weren't Christians when they were younger, or maybe even if they were younger, they'd never been taught what the Bible says. And there are lots of, of people who get in a situation where, for instance, they've committed to mortgages and things like that, and if the wife didn't work, they'd be homeless and stuff like that. 
Well, okay, what can I say? That's not ideal, but if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. If you can't get out of it, you can't get out of it. But what we must be absolutely clear about as a church is that irrespective of the situation that any individual people may have ended up in and can't do anything about, we've got to make sure that we are upholding for our younger people who aren't married yet the absolute biblical ideal so that they don't end up getting in the position that others in the church have got in and ideally shouldn't be in. Can you see the point? So what's vital here is that we maintain the absolute biblical standard without compromise. However, that doesn't mean that anyone is looking down on people who have, who, we cannot undo our past, can we? You see the point? So it's absolutely vital. There is absolute acceptance for those whose situation is not quite as it should be because you can't unscramble eggs. That's no problem. But we've got to make sure at the same time that we're maintaining as a church that anyone starting from scratch gets it right. Do you see the point? So that, that's a, a tremendous important principle. And I would say that it is as important for us at our time in history in this society in regards to gender roles as it was back then for the early church in regards to bigamy and things like that. So we need to keep that absolutely clear, okay? So this busy at home is tremendously important. We do need to understand that whenever the Bible, whenever the New Testament locates wives, it locates them in the home. Now, obviously, the Proverbs 30 woman, who is a wonderful woman, was out buying fields. That's absolutely great. But it's not the same thing as working for an employer other than her husband. She was doing that on her husband's behalf. So what we see there is a woman who is sharing in her husband's business. That's absolutely fantastic, but it's a very far cry from having a career woman who has a career outside of the home separate from her husband. Okay, that's, that's you know, sort of, that's, that's the ideal that we must aim for. Some of us are there, some of us aren't there, nothing that can be done about it, no problem. But we've got to make sure that we're putting all the right biblical signals out for those who have yet to get into their adult life so that we help them really do it right, okay. And uh, right, so, so then he says that the younger women uh, are to be trained by the older women to be kind, which, which kind of uh, spe speaks for itself. Uh, the Greek word here is agathos, it's good. And it, it describes that which is good in its very character or constitution, that which is beneficial in its effect. So being a good wife and a mother, not doing it reluctantly. You, you could have a wife who submits to her husband through gritted teeth. That's no good, is it? Well, it's better than not submitting to him with a smile, maybe. But obviously, it needs to be a willing, a glad submission and surrender. And, uh, you know, one, one that is kind, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, so that really putting heart and soul into it. In the same way that the husband should be putting his heart and soul into loving his wife as Christ loved the church. So a wife should be putting her heart and soul into being her husband's helper. Remember, Adam was created first, not Eve. And Eve was created to be his helper. It's not the other way around. I mean, obviously, husbands should help their wives, but a husband is not his wife's helper. He's his wife's head. 
a wife is her husband's helper. It's that way round. Can you see what I mean? And so it's tremendously important that wives do that gladly and not reluctantly. And then he says, and to be subject to their husbands. And he says, um, to be subject to their husbands. So there he, he, he drives it home. Now, obviously, this was not the problem when Paul wrote that it is, for instance, today in our society. This wasn't the problem 50 years ago, but it is today. But my goodness, this is a problem today. Now, we'd expect it. It shouldn't come as any surprise at all that this is a problem in the world out there. You know, we've, you know, sort of like, you know, had the whole women's lib thing and, you know, bras have been burned and, and stuff like that. But, but what should that have to do with us as believers? Answer nothing. The tragedy is this is in the church. This is standard thinking um, amongst Christians today. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's dreadful. And we, you know, we, we must maintain the truth of what the Bible says, you know, no matter what effect that has for us in being thought badly of by other believers. And again, look what he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. So what have we got here? We've got Paul basically painting the picture of the kind of woman that our modern society says would be an oppressed woman, if you see what I mean. But then he says, but when Christians go down that road, it maligns the word of God. And we saw, didn't we, just now in, when he wrote to Timothy about the same thing. And, you know, talking about how some people end up going after Satan. I mean, that's, that's serious stuff, that they're actually following the devil's way rather than God's way. Feminism is the devil's way. Now, obviously, so is showman, you know, chauvinism. You know, obviously, you know, men exploiting women, and that's, that's just as bad. But the point is that what we're talking about here is that Paul is saying that the word of God is maligned if Christians do not observe God's order for family and practice the difference in gender roles. Let me tell you something, and, you know, lots of people would find this very offensive, all right? But in exactly the same way that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shameful thing for men to have long hair? And I say that as someone who likes long hair, even though I don't have long hair because of that verse. But when push comes to shove, there are times when Paul appeals to, doesn't even nature teach us? He says, it's obvious. We've all got this written in our hearts. And let me tell you, even that unbelieving world out there, okay, in their heart of hearts, most people instinctively know that a man should be the head of his family. And there are millions of unbelievers who just instinctively believe that. They can't say it anymore, <laughs> you know, in the saying, all this political correctness. But yeah, instinctively. And when unbelievers look at Christian families that aren't practicing this order, they actually instinctively know that something is wrong. And uh, that's how important it is that we get this right, okay. Right, okay, let's move on now uh, to the younger men. So obviously, obviously this, this is the one that applies to me, so I've got to be, um, excuse me. <laughs> anyway, he says uh, similarly, now he doesn't actually have much to say to the young men, all right. Um, in fact, he's just really got one sentence. And he says, but, but this is the most important thing. If a young man, all right, gets this, he'll be okay. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. 
Now that is Sophronoa, and it's basically the same word that we saw with older men, uh, you know, kind of having that sound mind. It means the exercise of self-restraint and control that governs all passions. So the point is that, that younger men need really to get a hold of this um, and to really be all out to be conformed to the mind of, the, of Christ and, and not being out of control, be it anger, be it sexual desire, be it wrong talk, or just letting your hair down and having a good time to the extent where it goes over the top. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, letting your hair down, having a good time, nothing wrong with that. But we all know, goodness, I was a young man once. Well, what am I saying? No, no, this applies to me now. Oh, dear. What a giveaway. Okay. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we all know how young men can go over the top. I struggle with this all the time, of course, as a young man. So it's, it's just, you know, sort of like important. And again, you know, Paul is writing to Titus and saying, in your leadership of these churches, until such time as they raise up elders and then the elders will do it, you must be teaching, you know, sort of like the... The, the young men this and, and when Paul says encourage the young men um, that's um, you know sort of like a word we saw last time paracalio and it means to call someone to your side um, you know really really getting in there with people and encouraging them personally this this is not in the Greek the language merely of a leader preaching from on high to people that you know, telling them what to do and then leaving it there. No, this is this is a picture of someone who's involved personally with all these people. Do you see what I mean? Because obviously back then churches were small. It wasn't these big buildings with loads of people in it. No, this was small, this was intimate, and that is always the key to discipling people. And uh, you know, sometimes as I you know sort of like travel around, you know, I get you know sort you know sort of like people say, well. In a church like the one you're part of, how, how do you disciple people then? And of course, the thing is that what's lying behind that question is they're thinking, well, when do you have your discipleship classes? Because of course what happens is you're, a, you know, sort of like the pastor, maybe Wednesday night, seven o'clock, all the young men go to their discipleship class with the pastor in his study or something. They, they don't know him from Adam. I mean, they'll see him at that class and they'll see him in church and that's it. And they call that discipleship. That's nonsense. So when people say, you know, in your church, how do you disciple people then? I say, well, we share our lives with each other. You see, that's, that's how you do How did Jesus disciple the twelve? Did he make appointments once a week for an hour with them? No, he lived with them for three and a half years. And that's how we disciple, and that's how elders disciple. They share their lives with the people in their church and that's that's how it's done so that's what what he's saying here and then he says Titus in everything set them an example by doing what is good now here's the point about leadership you can only lead others where you yourself have been if 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 you want to to call people to your side and help them see how to live well what's the very best thing to do it well to live like that yourself isn't it and, uh, and, and when, when Paul says, set them an example, that's an interesting word here. Because the word for example, the Greek word is tupos, and it's from the word which means a blow. Now it's a word we get type from, typology, but it means a blow. And, and it, it, it creates this picture of an impression left by a blow. 
you know, I mean, if you if you get whacked with something that's got a pattern on it, that pattern will be left on your skin, won't it? It's an impression left by a blow. And of course, what, what it's talking about here is that an example in the sense that Paul is talking about here is someone whose behavior and character has been fashioned and shaped over years by the blows of God's dealings and discipline in their life. Can you see the point? I mean, literally, God has to knock us into shape. That's what sanctification is. And so, therefore, what Paul's saying to Titus is that, look, you know, as you interact with these people, shape them, you know, sort of like cause them to, you know, to reflect what you are by living it out amongst them and, uh, and, and, and showing them, okay. Um, and then he says, um, by doing what is good, obviously, you've, you've, you've got to, you know, be living what, what you're teaching. And uh, he says, uh, in your teaching, show integrity. Uh, now, the, the Greek word there, so now we're back on to Titus, what he must be doing, okay. And uh, aphthoria is the, uh, the Greek word here, and it means untainted, untainted. It means free from corruption. So the point is that as Titus is doing this, as he is playing his part in helping show people how to live and how to grow in the Lord, he's got to do it in such a way that there's nothing of his motive, there's nothing of anything he's up to which is tainting what he's doing and which is going to later corrupt people and, um, you know, and lead them astray. So the point is he's got to be transparently living what he's teaching them. So it shouldn't be do as I say, but not as I do, all right? It should be do as I do. That's, that, that's the standard that all Christian leadership has got to, to live by, okay? And then Paul says um, that you've, uh, let's see, he says, um, show integrity, seriousness, that's the same word, semnos again, okay? About really, you know, being worthy of respect and head down and getting on with it and, you know, completely committed and that. And uh, then he says that, um, uh, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So the point is that even, even in his verbal communication with people, leadership teaching is much more about verbally speaking, but, uh, but verbal communication is a big part of it. And the verbal communication has got to be such that uh, it can't be condemned, if you see what I mean. So... You know, I mean, what sort of things would we put in here that, you know, that it's wholesome speech, that it's not angry speech, it's not someone, you know, expressing frustration or, or what, you know, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Or it's not rude, it's not disrespectful, it's not, um, you know, sort of like a heartless, unfeeling or, you know, and obviously no dirty talk or anything like that, that obviously anyone uh, responsible for teaching has got to really be guarding their mouth, obviously. And then he goes on uh, to the, the last category of people um, that uh, Titus has, has, has got to be aware of, and that's the slaves. 
Um, a lot of the people in churches then would have been slaves. Uh, remember, this isn't necessarily slavery as in the kind of like, you know, we think of roots, don't we? You know, the slavery in America and the slave traders. It's not necessarily that sort of thing, okay? Um, but, you know, nevertheless, it was still slavery. And he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. That word subject, it's the same, it's, it's the same, same word as you know, sort of like wives submit to your husbands, you know, it's sort of, and it, it literally means to submit to a greater authority. And, you know, the, the reason that wives submit to their husbands is that husbands have authority over their wives. It's, it's submitting to due authority. And, uh, and, and it says, try to please them, not to talk back to them. So he says, don't, don't argue, you know, sort of be nice about it. You've got to do what they say. Um, go the extra mile, you know, try and be as pleasing a slave as you can be. Don't argue all the time. And he says, and don't steal from them. Now, obviously, for us, slavery doesn't relate today, but, you know, this would be very much at work, you know, with employers, you know, those, those you know, who, who work for employers. This would be very much the same there, to be good employees, to be submissive. Obviously, you know, we're only talking about now in work time, obviously. But, uh, you know, please your employer, be the very best whatever you are. The best bricklayer, the best bank clerk, the best, you know, roofer. Whatever it is we do, we should be the, ble the you know, the, the best. And if we have employers, we, we should do the best we can by them. And not to talk back, not argue, and not to steal for them. And it is a temptation, isn't it? It is easy to steal from work, isn't it? You know, and often one can just think little things. But, uh, you know, obviously Paul is saying, no, you know, Titus, make sure that the slaves understand that that can't be how it should be. And then he says, but show them that you can be fully trusted. Do you remember when Joseph went into slavery, how Potiphar made him virtually, you know, his number two in the house? You know, made him the head of the house when it came to all the administration and, and you know, and stuff like that. Paul's saying, if you're a slave, that's the kind of slave that you ought to be, just like Joseph, so that your master really trusts you and knows that you're doing the very best job that you can for him. And then he says, so that in every way, so this would be if the slaves do what Paul is saying, and this would apply to all the categories that Paul's dealt with. He says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now, that's, that's not a very good translation, because it almost makes out that we can make what God teaches attractive. What God teaches is attractive full stop, irrespective of us. In the Greek, what it actually says is that, 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 that you'll adorn the doctrine of God. And the Greek word is cosmio, it's the word that we get cosmos from. And the idea of this is that, I mean, cosmio means to arrange or put in order. You know, we look at the cosmos and all the stars are in the right place and stuff like that. And what he's saying is that if we live what we teach, if we live what we believe, if we live according to the truth, then that truth will begin to draw people to it. 
But if we don't live according to the truth that we believe, we're going to repel people. And it's obvious, isn't it? Because then we would be hypocrites. And so the point is also, this word in the Greek is used of clothing. You adorn yourself with clothing. I come back to you ladies looking gorgeous in the way that you dress. <clears throat> and in the same way that when you have believers who live what they believe, they really are following the Lord in word and deed as well, then what happens is that they really do show forth the beauty of the Lord's truth. Even if that truth is really causing unbelievers to gnash their teeth in anger, because Jesus had that effect on them, but nevertheless it's showing forth the beauty of the Lord. Whereas when we're Christians who believe but don't live according to what we believe, then we actually repel people and we just, as Paul said earlier, cause the word of God to be maligned. And so it's amazing to think that according to how we live, and at the end of the day, obviously everything is through the grace of the Lord and his power in us, but nevertheless it's up to us, isn't it, the extent to which we do draw on God's grace. That is up to us. And what's incredible is we can be one of two things. We can be Christians, we can be believers who are beautifying the truth of God's word and showing him forth. Or we can be Christians who, as other people look on, we actually cause them to malign God's word and to malign that truth. Now that's an awesome responsibility, isn't it? And we're back to being soldiers or being athletes. Oh boy, we need to be taking this uh, really seriously. Remember the verse in James I referred to earlier not to be merely hearers of the word, to make sure that we're doers of the word too. And that also is the very best evangelism in the world as well. Okay, I think maybe we'll um, call it a day there and we'll continue next time.